Okay. We're li- okay. <laughs> this is the Cold Pizza Party Podcast, and I'm Adam. I'm Lubitsa. And uh, on this pizza, on this podcast called the Cold Pizza Party Podcast, we talk about politics and TV. Uh, isn't that right, Lubitsa? It is, but I think this week we'll mostly just talk about politics, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what we talk about. You you can find out with us. Uh, we don't always talk about what we plan to talk about. So we're definitely going to talk about Super Tuesday and talk about people talking about Super Tuesday, mostly. Okay, well, let's start by talking about it. Okay, so uh, the first thing about Super Tuesday to know is that nobody knows what they're talking about. I found a great article online uh, about how, so Nate Silver, the 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 little, the uh, <laughs> he's not little, he's a grown man, <laughs> the wonderkind who uh, got, so he's a math guy who... He's more of a stats guy. Really. Yeah, stats guy. And that's very different from math, really. And he found uh, fame in 2008, I think it was, uh, predicting the election by taking aggregates of polls. And, you know, he's one of those guys who, like, worked in Sabre metrics, which is baseball stats and poker stats. And so he had tried to apply some of those same models to politics, and he had some success in 2008. Well, this time around, a fake pundit that two Twitter users made up is beating him in predictions. So there's a uh, fake pundit named Carl Diggler. And Carl Diggler is, a, like, a 30-year journalism veteran of the dc area who likes to complain about his ex-wife on his blog uh and is completely fake and he's making he's he's predicted almost every race except for a few how it would go and he's crushing nate silver's website 538 because you you can't predict politics the models that they use work for baseball and poker because those are those are discrete games where you know the odds yeah and you're working within like certain confines like uh, unless you're like really roided out like the human body can only like you know hit a ball so hard or you know go whatever throw a ball so fast like there's like limits to what can happen there and the variables are also limited there's only so many variables that you can really measure yeah. Whereas with politics, there's many unknown knowns. Is that what Donald uh, Rumsfeld said? Known knowns and unknown. Known unknowns and unknown unknowns yeah. are what's going to throw your predicting off when yeah. it comes to politics. Yeah. And uh, when asked why their fake pundit is beating Nate Silver, they had that answer. They're like, this is an ahistorical election. Nate Silver built a computer and fed numbers into it, but that's... You know, we're just going by our gut, by our instinct. And that's the only thing you can rely on when you're trying to predict something like this where the parameters are just unknowable. You know, you can easily predict how many times out of 50 coin flips you're going to get one heads and 49 tails. But politics doesn't work that way. You know, this is going to sound sort of cheesy and you could probably also convince me out of this argument. But just you saying that made me think... um, it's interesting that we have so much faith in like computer models and you know like, like a computer that um, someone built, uh, and these people are just going based on we call it their gut, right? But really, they're just sort of using their brain, right? Like they're 
you know, it's the brain is the, I mean, it's not a computer. I kind of hate that analogy, but also in a way it is the most complex computer or whatever that we've ever seen. Right. And the idea that, um, a computer model could be, could ever, um, encompass all of the knowledge that you gain by like existing in the world, you know, like is sort of laughable, right? Like, you know, if you're a person, you're taking in a lot more information on a very dynamic basis. And you're, I think, able to make real-time predictions much more accurately, especially if you're interested in this stuff, than, you know, if you're, if you've got a computer model that you're carefully feeding specific bits of information. Yeah. Um, I think we so far haven't invented a computer that sleeps and dreams and works out problems in its subconscious dreaming state, for example. But so when people tell you stuff about Super Tuesday and what it means, eh. <laughs> well, also, obviously, I mean, I think some some outlets like Young Turks did a really good job of pointing this out. We don't watch um, like news networks, so we don't know how the other channels did. But um, it's also like it's a proportional uh, election, right? Or all of the primaries were really proportional, except like Texas, which has like a threshold where you if you're above the threshold, you get a certain or you get like most of the um, delegates or whatever. But the point is that because it's proportional, you know, we say Hillary Clinton won, but in states where it's close, that's the difference of a delegate, you know? Uh, And so did she I mean it's a sign I guess of her power or whatever in this election but like I think it's fair to point out that uh news outlets make money through sensationalizing things obviously and here was an example where you know they could not resist the overwhelming urge to sensationalize rather than be realistic and maybe educate the electorate a little bit about uh how our democratic process works which seems like it would be a much more interesting and useful function for the 24-hour news networks than just, you know, taking everything to 11. <laughs> so how do you feel with after Super Tuesday in Hillary versus Bernie? I don't know. I mean, I feel fine. I obviously would have loved if Bernie also won, to use the terminology, Massachusetts, but I think he's still in a fine position he still has a ton of money, which is really great. It means that he can keep going. I think he should keep going. Obviously, the Super Tuesday primary has a lot of southern states, um, and those states were always going to go towards Hillary, so it's not really like a surprise. I don't, you know, to me, it's not really like a game changer. You know, as we've seen a lot of memes and stuff online say, you know, there's still like what 41 more primaries. Uh, Barack Obama didn't you know, cinch the nomination till May. So we've still got a ways to go. I don't think we need to like freak out just yet. I don't know. Hopefully Bernie will win. (laughs) Talking about predicting elections and stuff. I'm surprised Democratic turnout isn't as high as the Obama election, but um, the Republican turnout is. The Republicans are voting at almost the same rate as Democrats came out for Obama's run in 2008. And maybe it's wrong to credit Obama with that. Maybe no. we should actually credit Bush with that because no, I don't think it... I th- maybe so many Democrats turned out because we were so happy to get rid of Bush and now Republicans are so happy to get rid of Obama that they're turning out in big numbers. 
Yeah, maybe that's true. I, I mean, I heard that the last big turnout before that was like maybe like 19, I don't know, 88 or something like that. So maybe you're right. Maybe that is what the motivator is, is just like you're going to have a really big turnout when one side is really unhappy. That's just part of my point, though, is nobody really knows what these numbers mean. And everybody assumes that means uh, that, I don't know, Bernie isn't getting people fired up. Yeah. But you don't really know what that means necessarily. We heard in Colorado where Bernie won that they had way more out um, people coming out than they expected. For yeah, example. actually, like 2008 numbers in the primary. And also, um, you know, the narrative uh, in the so-called mainstream media um, has been that, uh, oh, Bernie just hasn't done enough outreach to, you know, uh, minority voters, specifically like black people and Latinos. The woman in Colorado that's his like state organizer was talking about how they were like winning with Latinos. Mm -hmm. So, but that narrative just, you know, just gets dismissed because it's like, oh, whatever. They're all a bunch of potheads in Colorado. And of course they voted for Bernie, you know? Uh, I think it's important to note that, so Hillary won more states, but they're all red states. All her big wins besides Massachusetts have been red states. Bernie actually is winning purple states like Colorado. Well, I guess he didn't win Nevada, but come on he did really well and minnesota is purple yeah i think so yeah new hampshire is pretty purple oklahoma yeah oklahoma is like red and he won it yeah. oh well i was just saying <laughs> hillary's winning okay, red, red states it's not really cares? a surprise when hillary wins red states she's more conservative like yeah. the people who live in red states are more conservative i mean i went out and voted for bernie in texas but i wasn't really surprised that he didn't win texas like yeah. that's another thing i was thinking about Hillary winning black votes in the South. Well, those are pretty conservative people yeah, socially. Like going to church every Sunday. Yeah. They are some some might not be as um, okay with like gay marriage and yeah. you know trans folks as uh, as you know their northern counterparts. Yeah. So I mean I think in a lot of these cases those a lot of those voters might be moderate to conservative if it weren't for the fact that they know that the Republican Party like hates black people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel sort of bad saying that, but I mean, Donald Trump is the front runner. So I, yeah. I guess there's no reason for me to feel bad saying that because it used to just be like, you know, just under the surface. And now it's, he's winning with, you know, outright admissions and, um, you know, support of, from the KKK and stuff. So, yeah. I think it's important that Bernie's winning purple states, though, um, because if Trump is the nominee, which it looks like he's going to be, we need someone who can win those purple states because there's a good chance that Trump is going to win those like middle American uh, purple states, like even Ohio. I'd say he has a good chance at winning Ohio, yeah. just being somebody who lived there for a long time and grew up there. I could easily see him winning middle american states against hillary and i think bernie would be a better candidate to take him on in those purple states if he has more support in places like colorado well i was saying to you earlier today you know everyone agrees the country's in a populist mood and they're anti-establishment and whatnot and it's like yeah so run bernie against a billionaire you know like who do you think is going to win if the country's in a populist mood whereas if you run in a super establishment candidate like hillary clinton i mean trump 
is going to like have it in the bag, you know? Yeah. He's the outsider. He's the one who who better fits the narrative. And I think to some extent with his voters, there's a real sense um, like when we hear those callers on AFR and stuff and they call in, you know, AFR wants them to vote for Ted Cruz. But, you know, the, a lot of these people love Trump and they call in and talk about how he's a rich guy. Like he's so wealthy. He's so successful. He doesn't need to run for president. Yeah. It's like he's a benevolent man. He's doing this out of the goodness of his heart. That's like part of the narrative that they've kind of divined from themselves out of this run and when you put that up against Hillary Clinton who they blame for you know Benghazi she's got this FBI thing hanging over there's like a million email scandals not to mention that Trump can do the same thing to her that he did to uh, Lindsey Graham by putting out uh, you know he came to me begging me for money he's come to my office begging me for money what a loser I mean I could I bought this guy like What do you think he's going to do to Hillary Clinton? You think he's going to hold back? You think he's going to be like Bernie, who is like, oh, I don't want to run a negative ad and sometimes frustrates me with how like nice and dignified or whatever he is. Like, I, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Of course, he's going to win some of those purple states because he's going to fight really fucking hard for them. And Hillary Clinton just is such a flawed candidate. Yeah. I'm ready to call the Republican nomination for Trump. It seems it seems like it's going to happen now. The only thing that I've heard that kind of is interesting is um, if like, but I, I think very, very unlikely to happen, is if um, like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio got together and proposed themselves as a ticket um, with Marco Rubio as the presidential nominee which I just can't imagine Ted Cruz going with. But the idea there being that together they have more delegates than Donald Trump and it would be a way to give the party an out, uh, allow them to support Marco Rubio, who's obviously their water boy, and um, totally um, make it, they could spin it in a way that says, look, we got more delegates than Donald Trump. We're giving the people what they want. This is what the conservatives want yeah cruz isn't gonna do that though I know. and to be fair rubio's won one state right yeah. so cruz is doing four times better than marco rubio but marco rubio has uh like a wide array of billionaire donors he has a ton of them whereas ted cruz has like i think it's like four or eight or something like that that are like really like devoted and but like they own him so it's like a you know what i mean it's like more of the donors who are the people who obviously matter in both parties but especially the republican party would be um pushing for rubio to be the front run the front of the ticket yeah i want to make some more republican election predictions here i know we're saying you can't predict these things keep that in mind i'm just gonna state this as if it's gonna happen because i feel that way i'm just going on my gut Ted Cruz has no chance. If he wins the nomination, there's no way he's going to win the presidency. I cannot see people voting for him. Another thing, so if Trump's the nominee, he can definitely win purple states. Ted Cruz cannot. Maybe a few, but he's not going to win enough to win the election. One thing that this, we've talked about this, that the Republican side of this election shows us is that conservatives have been wrong about their base. As much as the politicians are acting like their base cares about abortion religious issues. Trump isn't good on those issues and he's still winning. Their base doesn't want a real principled conservative 
Christian conservative. I mean, it's the base they've cultivated and what they want is racist. Like, you know, let's be real. Like, I mean, what was the Tea Party movement about? It was right after Obama got elected and he was like, hey, I'm going to give people health care. And they were like, what the fuck? Like, and they came out in droves basically to complain that there was a black man in the White House. And they were just like, have you guys all lost your minds? We should be freaking out. There's a black man in the White House. And if you remember that summer of like 2009, I think it was. Oh, my God. It was insane. Like you could feel the country boiling, you know, and it was like all that hate. And then those people found each other and they got organized. And surprise, now Donald Trump is the front runner. Yeah, they don't care. I mean, they care about abortion and they care. They like, I guess, the Iraq war. But some a lot of them don't. You know, he has been able to say things that certainly no progressive has been allowed to say, let alone a Democrat, of course. Who would in the Democratic Party? They're spineless. But look, 9-11 happened on Bush's watch. He did not keep us safe. It was the Iraq war was a huge mistake. Like these are things that like you're not you, I never hear people say on like MSNBC or anything like that. And yet Donald Trump was allowed to say it in a <laughs> Republican debate. So yeah, you say like they don't care about a principled conservative? Fuck no. But what they do like, what they do care about, what animates them is that he's saying what they're thinking. And what they're thinking is, oh my God, we had a black man in the White House. The demographics are changing. Everyone's telling me white people are going to be a minority soon. Yeah. And we need to have a strong man in there that's going to like to use Hillary Clinton's words, bring these minorities to heal, right? That's yeah. going to like keep me in power and in charge and keep me safe from these changing demographics, basically. Yeah. yeah. And this is That's a his- care about. And they're always animated by fear, man. I was yeah. telling you while we were watching a little bit of the Super Tuesday speeches, I think it was like Ted Cruz, where it was just constant, like, Boo, boo, yeah. boo. Everything was about booing. You watch Bernie and everyone's so excited and they're cheering and they're like going crazy and clapping and they're so happy and excited. And then you watch a Ted Cruz rally and it's all just like boo, yeah. boo. Oh, they hate everything. They're afraid of everything. It's ah, oh, it's crazy. Yeah. That's the same when you listen to AFR and people call in. It's all anger. Oh, they're conservative. They're too. conservative. They're Christian. They're never like hey, we're Christians, let's make America a better place. So how can we, what can we do to help people? What can we do to make America friendlier and happier? But how can you be excited about the future when you know doomsday is coming? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Or how can you be excited about the future on earth at all Mm -hmm. when you think you're going to heaven? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is like an ahistorical election. That's why it's so hard to predict. Mm -hmm. Also, Trump is hard to predict. It's hard to know what he really believes in or would do as president. But what we do know is who supports Trump and who will feel empowered if Trump gets elected. Yeah. And they're scary, vicious people. Okay, so I wanted to talk about Hillary Clinton's college plan um, because I think there's a lot of stuff that goes unsaid whenever uh, this topic comes up. And it's stuff that seems really obvious to me um, and uh, and I know to you because we've talked about it a lot. Um, but I never hear about it. And I always hear a lot of griping about how Bernie's plan isn't specific enough and Bernie hasn't t- thought things through. And, oh, they're just big lofty pie in the sky ideas. And it's not as um, 
as uh, detailed as, as Hillary's plan. Um, but I have some questions that I never hear answered. And so I kind of want to bring those up just to get people thinking about what the Clinton plan would really look like and what it would really mean. So, um, you know, according, let's see, to this HuffPo article that I found, you know, I'm going to read you a little quote here where, about some of the details. Um, so it says, Clinton's proposal would offer $17.5 billion per year in federal funds for states to reinvest in public higher education. It would consolidate income-based uh, repayment programs, strengthen regulatory oversight of student loans, simplify the loan application process, and expand programs to help low-income first-generation college students. For those already burdened with debt, it would allow them to refinance at today's low interest rates and eliminate profits from for the federal government from the student loan program. It would cap loan payments at 10% of income and provide total forgiveness after 20 years. So those are all really good things. And I mean, they sound like good things to me. Um, you know, I wonder a little bit about the funds that she's going to give uh, to states to reinvest in public higher education because there are states like uh, Wisconsin where Governor Walker has actually um, really fucked around with their uh, higher education. So like at the University of Wisconsin, he took out a bit um, of, of the charter that, that talked about ed education for education's sake, basically, because he thinks that people should just go to college to get jobs. So if you're going to give him federal funds to reinvest in uh, public higher education, I'm not really sure what that outcome would look like. Yeah. That's a little scary. Plus with Obamacare, all those states yeah. uh, refused. Was, yeah. yeah, they refused the Medicaid expansion that Obama offered as part of the plan. Yeah, so, so they would be free to do the same thing here. Yeah, so that that worries me. Um, and uh, another thing that really worries me is that her plan um, it promises a quote unquote no loan solution to student debt, but. Part of that solution is families would still be required to pay tuition according to a formula that determines how much they can afford. So that's really worrisome to me um, because, first of all, we're talking about mostly middle class families here that are going to be uh, subject to this um, requirement. requirement. Yeah. And um that means that there's going to be families who are going, especially if they have like more than one student in college at a time or in close succession, who are going to be um, feeling pressure to borrow against the equity in their home if they have it, mm. to get a second, you know, um, or third mortgage, to um, borrow a private loan, which puts us right back where we are, or to take out credit card debt. And all of those things obviously are um, going to be most likely to be used by the poorest families. I mean, I know it's determined based on what you can afford, but I, I don't know what that formula actually is. And I, what I do know is that there's a lot of middle class families um, where incomes fluctuate. So if you think about a, a contractor, like a dad who's a contractor or a mom, <laughs> um, and before the um, crash, you know, there's all these people taking out loans, building houses, making additions to their houses, and all these contractors have really good business. And then you have the crash and the housing bubble bursts. And all of a sudden, contractors, like a ton of businesses just 
I mean, they, they went under. There was no work. There was yeah. nobody who could afford to get the loans. Everyone's just trying to get rid of their houses. So one year, you know, the father is making, let's say, over 100000 And the next year, he's unemployed. But you're still on the hook to pay the tuition, presumably. I mean, I don't know because no one has answered what, what her plan would do in that situation. Um, but presumably, the family, the student, someone is on the hook to pay whatever that formula determined they could afford. So I just don't know how we determine what families can afford, but I'm very skeptical of how we determine that. Yeah. Uh, can I say two more things yeah, that yeah. jump out to me about that provision? Um, if you're acquiring families who you've determined are able to pay to pay, um, and Anna Kasparian, I think, has brought this up on the Young Turks a few times. Not all parents are great parents, you know? Yeah, that was, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like I had a friend who, um, both his parents had master's degrees. As far as I know, they made good way, made, made good salaries. Yeah. Um, They also had like four kids and maybe they weren't very good with money, you mm. know, but they had pretty high incomes and they wouldn't even pay for him to take an SAT test. They were like, get a job and pay for it yourself. Yeah. So why should he be penalized um, for that? because that's his parents decision the other did you have something well just uh, that's what that was one of my other criticisms that i noted here was this has a very upper middle class you know white privileged view of the world which is that like parents will um sort of you know willingly sacrifice to send their children to college and they all think that's the best thing for their children and I don't know. To me, it's like it certainly sounds like the neighborhood I grew up in, but it's and the parents I like of my friends that they would, of course, they would do that. But I don't think most of America is like. No, that's that. a good point. Like to defend these parents, they came from a situation where they had a lot less money than they made themselves. They worked hard for it, and they felt that their kids should have to work hard in life. Yeah, and exactly. that that would serve them better than just having it paid for them. Yeah, whereas like maybe a more affluent family is like no, I feel great that I can afford to give this to my child, you know, and you feel, you know, you you have different values. You take pride in different things. And I'm not even saying one is necessarily better than the other, but it's just, it's, it's obviously crafted from a specific worldview. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I have another values-based criticism of this that you'll share. I'm positive. Government should serve everybody. Yeah. Everybody pays taxes. Yes. Donald Trump's kids should be able to go to OSU if he lived in Ohio. I hate this argument. It drives me in fucking sane and she makes it all the time. Rich people pay a lot of taxes, frankly. If Donald Trump is in Ohio paying a bunch of taxes, he should let his kids, they should be allowed to go to OSU if that's what they choose. Also, they're not going to choose that. They're going to go to a private school because they have the money to remove themselves from society and go into their little enclaves. But this is also how they weaken programs. This is why Bernie is against cutoffs for social security and medicare based on wealth um because then uh it's a different that is not to me a healthy values to have we're only going to help poor people with their specific needs if you're poor we're just going to give you food stamps and you have to qualify for them you're you're dividing people and you're sort of saying these people are helpless and needy and these people are great and wonderful and don't need any help in a way and um what you're doing when you make a program it's not universal right is another way of thinking of that is oh there's a cutoff for social security well what's the cutoff like they're gonna keep 
yeah. there's incentive to keep fucking with it in a way that will benefit yeah, yeah. the wealthy, you know, and keep taking money out of social security effectively, mm -hmm. right? Because people will be like, oh, yeah. uh, well, I shouldn't have to pay into social security. And we can t keep tweaking that cutoff like, oh, it doesn't make sense to only work 65 to age 65. Now we got to make them work to age yeah. 70. Um, also, it opens up the argument to say, these people are just mooching. Yeah. Right. Yes. They're poor. They're taking advantage yeah. of the system. I don't get those benefits. Yeah. You, um, upper working class, lower middle class, white Republican voter, don't get these benefits. Yeah. These aren't for you. Government's not working for you. They're taking from you and giving to poor people and minorities. Right. That's what this plan will look like to them, probably. Yeah. Or it could at least be argued that way. Yeah. And so speaking of dividing people by class, one of the other major problems that um, certainly you and I immediately spotted yeah. when looking at this plan was that students will be required to work 10 hours a week um, in order to basically qualify for the plan. Yeah. So to me, that's like crazy on two levels. First of all, a lot of the students that are going to um, need loan uh, this this assistance program um, are students who probably came from middle class, lower middle class neighborhoods. Even upper middle class students, I'm sure, would be happy to qualify for it. But the reality is that um, most of the, the bulk of the participants of the program would be middle class and lower middle class students who are coming and, and, and poor students who are coming from um, underfunded school systems okay so they had to overcome and do a ton of work just to get into college as compared to the upper uh, middle class student who went to a good high school with a college counselor and all the support they could ever need to get into college and all the AP access to the AP classes and IB program and you know anything like that that they were interested in pursuing music classes, art classes, right? All those things always get cut in the poorer schools. So anyway, they're coming from a super underfunded, underperforming school, or at least a moderately underperforming school. They had to overcome all of that. They got into, they did well anyway. They got into college and now they're going to be expected to carry a full course load plus work 10 hours a week minimum in order to participate in this program. So they have to take time out of being a student to go earn their uh, college experience base or their college education. And I just think that's like in insanely unfair because the people who are gonna need the most time to do the work of being in college, at least in the first year especially, are bound to be those students. Like they need to catch up a lot of times. They need extra support. Maybe they want to go to the, you know, library and get that extra time with the tutor or whatever. But instead, if they're being like a good responsible student, like we are imagining that they are supposed to be, right? Yeah. And instead they're going to have to go, I don't know, work in the dining hall, work in the library, wherever it is. Yeah. So to me, that's like already you're setting them up to, for failure. Um, and of course, they're going to want to carry a full course load, by the way, because if they keep staying in school longer, you know, uh, the longer uh, it takes them to graduate, the more expensive yeah. it is or a, more of a burden it is on their families. Yeah. So there's like pressure on them to take a heavy course load, maybe even. Anyway, so there's that. And then you're also creating this like two tiered college experience yeah. where there's the wealthy students that can afford to be there 
you know, without the assistance. And you have the kids who are, you know, working these jobs. And in a lot of cases, certainly at Allegheny, um, you know, students end up serving other students, yeah. right? Yeah. I wore a bow tie yeah. and served like sorority and frat members in the fancy alumni center dining hall sometimes yeah. and donors and things like that. Yeah. And you know, mostly I thought that was cool to be separated from that sphere of people because I don't want to be like rich and have everything handed to me, but it's also embarrassing yeah. that I had to work all the time and other kids um, had more free time to socialize or hang out and didn't have to do that or to do homework or yeah yeah that's more important i guess or you know (laughs) equally important yeah yeah um and and the other thing going along with that is um i think i qualified for work study as well but i was i always like got to campus like the day classes started or something like that and it was always already too late to get a work study job because there were just were not enough jobs on campus so how is she going to guarantee that there are enough work study jobs for all these students to actually be able to qualify even if they are able to carry a full course load and work at minimum Mm -hmm. 10 hours that's a a huge problem to me we live where we live, Texas A&M University has over 58,000 students. <laughs> How, yeah. and, and this is not um, a school for rich people. You can assume most people would want to take advantage of this program yeah. if it's available to yeah, them, and it should be. There's definitely a ton of middle class people here. I yeah. mean, one of the biggest, you know, it's like poultry sciences yeah. and like farming and yeah. things like that. I mean, agriculture, A&M, yeah. So let's say only three-fifths of them want to do that. That's 30,000 students that you got to find 10 hours of work for per week. Yeah. That's 300,000 man hours yeah. in this college town. Yeah. And another problem with that is you're displacing the local economy. You're taking jobs that adults should do for an adult mm-hmm. wage and giving it to low-skilled, low-paid student yeah. workers. Um, the students here drive the buses, yeah. which is kind of scary to me. But me I haven't seen an accident yet. <laughs> but bus driving, that's like an adult's job. You should have an adult public servant doing that job. Instead, we're cutting those public service jobs and giving them to students. Yeah. Library jobs. You know, there. I can't imagine there's enough library jobs for all the people that want to be librarians, but we're filling those with, you know, students working part-time instead. Yeah. Um, I did a bit of quick math. For 300,000 man hours a week, that is 7,500 full-time jobs. So you're potentially taking 7,000 jobs out of the local economy. Yeah. And this is, this brings me to, I mean, she's a a neoliberal, like, you know, so it's not a surprise that she has a really hard time with this concept, but it's like, we need to just be willing as a country to give people money, like as directly as possible. We're always trying to find all these workarounds to actually like welfare, food stamps, you know, housing vouchers, school vouchers, whatever. We need to just be willing to give people money. And I know Bernie doesn't offer that either. I'm just saying there's this problem that we have. We it, So many studies have been done at this point that show when you give people money, whether it's here or in the third world, that that is the that has the biggest impact on their lives because only you can't make a program that is going to be the uh, best use of money for the for everybody. Yeah. Only individuals know where they need to spend the money you know and 
this idea of like, oh, well, we'll get we'll just force them to earn it by making them work this nominal 10 hours, except when you put it all together in a major university, like you said, you're taking out like almost you know 10,000 jobs out of the community practically. And it's like uh, this idea of like, well, we're going to um, solve this problem by doing this other thing. And then later we'll like have to deal with yeah. a new problem and we'll do something else short sighted. Rather than just being willing to, you know, cut to the chase. Yeah, and remember, government prints money. They control the money supply. Yeah. We act like they don't, and whenever they take out debt, it's a bad thing. But they're already giving money to banks. They could give money to people instead. Yeah. They just, they won't do it because the rich people have the power, and they don't want asset prices to change. They don't want their money to be messed around with. Yeah. They want to hold on to as much of it as possible. Hold on to as much of the value as possible. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think we can wrap it up there for Hillary. Um, just really quickly to give you a few details on Bernie. And um, I'm not Vox, so like neither one of these discussions is like a super detailed outline of every single part of their plan. But just to uh, give you a few um, ideas of the Sanders plan, um, it was... Uh, it would make all public colleges and universities tuition free. It would eliminate the federal profit from student debt and allow students to refinance at significantly lower rates. Under current conditions, the undergraduate student loan rate would drop from 4.2% to 2.3%. Um, there would be no payment requirements for middle class families and no 10 hour work week to add to a student's course load. Students would be able to use federal, state, and institutional need-based aid to cover room and board, books, and living expenses. All major con contributors to student debt, obviously. And it would triple the size of the federal work-study program and offer significant relief to current student debt holders. So definitely um, addresses some of my concerns. It's, obviously, you can tell from the criticism that I've voiced is I don't think it's perfect, but um, it's a lot closer to uh, something that I think will provide um, more affordable education to more people. Um, so unless, do you want to say, well, can I just jump from that a little bit to say, I think specifics, you said we're not going to discuss this in like the ultimately detailed specific way. I think they're overrated. I think oh, people give too. Hillary a lot of credit for voicing yeah. specifics. And you saw this with Carly Fiorina when she wanted to prove that she could be a good commander in chief. She was like, we need six more boats in the Navy and we need 20 more of this type of jet in the air force. Yeah. And people were like, oh, she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. But that's all bullshit. We don't need more aircraft carriers. Yeah. We don't need more jets. We have all that we need. She just came up with some specifics so that people would hear that. And they don't even, when you were at the beginning detailing what's in Hillary's plan, yeah. did I pay attention the whole time? No. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, zoned out a little bit. Yeah. And the, the impression I got ultimately was, oh, Hillary has a detailed plan, yeah. which means, you know, she's serious. There's she's thought numbers. about this. Yeah, numbers there's numbers. Yeah, numbers are good. Numbers are key. That's yeah. why we believe polls. That's why we say she won, even yeah. if she has virtually the same amount of delegates as Bernie in a given state. Um, I think it's just a way to trick you into thinking that this is a good plan because it has numbers and it has details. Yeah, and I think I also as someone who took writing classes, that's how you trick people into thinking that your writing is good. <laughs> you put specificity and you put concrete right. things in. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think we talk about values a lot. We're probably going to sound like, you know, crazy Christian conservatives if you're not paying attention. But 
Um, you know, I think that there isn't really enough you can say about how important it is to be guided by core values and principles um, because I don't need to know what Bernie Sanders will do in every single situation yeah. because I feel, I mean, I'm interested. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not going to just give them a pass and be like, oh, whatevs. Yeah. And we're not going to assume where you agree with them 100% exactly. of the time on every issue. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I can tell based on his long record that he is guided by a certain set of uh, values and principles that I really fundamentally agree with. And that gives me confidence that whatever situation arises, yeah. uh, if he's our leader, he's going to make good decisions. And I think uh, I feel pretty confident saying he will do his best to make good decisions for the most amount of people. Yeah. I think that's really a key part of this, you know, uh, whereas, Hillary Clinton like you know I think she's like competent and everything yeah. but I don't have any kind of faith that she's gonna make good decisions you know for people like me or my yeah. life specifically I think she'll make good decisions as she sees them like the hard decisions where it's like well we're bringing jobs or something you know or whatever some kind of platitude that makes her feel better about giving a ton of money to some corporation or yeah. you know so specificity is important because you want to you know you don't want it to be like republicans where it's just all platitudes and no one actually says anything you know yeah. but on the other hand i think uh specificity is also really overrated especially in a primary especially when yeah. um a lot of criticism for example for for bernie is oh well what is he gonna get through with a um you know Re republican congress and it's like, okay, so then why are we valuing specificity? Like, I rather, like I say, have him be guided by values and principles because then I know he'll fight for every inch because that's what he believes in. And maybe he won't get the perfect college plan or whatever, but he'll get us a lot closer because he's a fighter, like actually fights for these values yeah. than someone who's, you know, wishy-washy on them and also ha is guided by like these neoliberal ideas of you got to work for it you got to earn it and it's going to create like a two-tier you know uh, uh, an even more divided college experience where it's like clear who the poor kids are you know <laughs> like yeah yeah nicely put <laughs> yeah oh one other thing i wanted to say about the college tuition thing that i forgot is um Having college be tuition free will be a natural deterrent to rising tuition costs, right? Oh, yeah. Because if public universities point. are free, then private universities can keep in increasing yeah. <laughs> their tuition as much as they want, I guess. But at some point, no one's going to go because yeah. uh, it, it would be crazy. Uh, whereas if you just keep providing ways to finance the rising yeah. cost in education, then there's there's no incentive yeah, for totally. it to go down. Right now, all we do is provide Pell Grants and subsidized loans. And you can make the argument that that is doing nothing to help people pay for college. It's only driving the price up. Yeah. Well, and I don't really see any natural deterrent in Hillary's plan for the... No, no. She's just offering more subsidies, so ultimately. Yeah. She's just she's offering just more... financing. Yeah. For those rising costs. Yeah. She's like, you can pay it over a certain period of time, 10% of your salary, yeah. this, that, it's, with your family. It's better but, financing than we've got. Yeah. But doesn't that, may, tell me if I'm wrong, doesn't that basically mean we're still going to be giving um, government money to private companies to make a profit off of by loaning to students? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
So I just wanted to mention that real quick. Um, but I also think we should wrap it up here for this discussion. And um, we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with our, I think, last topic. So with the um, Hillary's school plan there, we were talking about values, right? Mm -hmm. I think that Hillary's values are that, hey, this is how politics are done. I am good at it. Mm -hmm. And if you look through my background, you're going to find some business dealings. You're going to find that I did things for donors. But that's just how politics works in our country. That means that I'm a good player and you want me on your side. Mm -hmm. I think that's her perspective. Not a segue? <laughs> that was my attempt at a segue. Oh, I don't know. Well, we want to talk about, you wanted to talk about neoliberalism in general? Yeah, but I had a different start in mind. Okay, you do your segue now. Okay. Let's stack segues. Okay. Uh, so basically, when we were talking about the college affordability plan, you know, we were talking about how um, the response to the student loan uh, debt bubble crisis that's like looming or, or has hit or whatever um, uh, is okay well we'll you know create this college plan and we'll make them work 10 hours a week and then they'll earn it except as Adam pointed out that's taking out a lot of oh, valuable see. jobs out of the community so now the community doesn't have jobs now revenues are low um, in that town for tax revenues, you know, and businesses are going under and the state can't pay. And now they're trying to find a cheaper source of drinking water. And I mean, it's just like you can see the rolling crisis after crisis. And um, there's this. Uh, so that's kind of the example I want to use to uh, get us to talk about um, this awesome article I read um, on Salon. Uh, called The Truth About Flint, Kids Drink Poisoned Water Because of the GOP's Radical Anti-Democratic Quote-Unquote Reforms. This nightmare happened because of deeply undemocratic steps taken after the GOP gerrymandered a blue state. Um, so I, this article is like amazing, and I, Adam was looking at my notes and was like, you've basically highlighted every single line, and I was like, that's because it's all gold. Um, so I would really, really highly recommend that you take time to read the whole article. Um, but Adam has convinced me not to spend <laughs> next however many minutes reading it um, out loud to you myself, and instead to focus on um, one specific idea that uh, I got really excited about when I read this article. Um, so that's uh, basically this um, term uh, neoliberalization um, or neoliberalism as we sometimes talk about it. Um, so but I am going to read a, a couple quotes here real quick just yeah. to get us into this. Uh, so Adam and I, I made Adam because I was really excited after I read this article, uh, watch like an hour long academic talk with me. Um, and this is actually from that talk um, as quoted in the article. So. Jamie Peck, a geography professor from the University of British Columbia, invoked that broader historical framework in a presentation titled Framing Detroit, sponsored by the Detroit School of Urban Studies in January 2014. The way neoliberalism as a political project works is that it tends to lean into 
its crises. It fails in a forward direction. And as free market privatization fails, the next move chosen within a neoliberal framework is to explore public-private partnerships and so on. This is how the process rolls forward, constantly generating crisis crises, which are addressed in neoliberal terms, but those terms are constantly adjusting as the problems evolve. Indeed, Peck expressed a preference for talking about neoliberalization as an ongoing process, taking different forms over time and in different situations around the globe. It's not like the neoliberal program is driving us to any system that could ever work, he added. It's a stark utopia. It's not going to get us to that destination. So what does it do instead? It repeatedly drives us into various crises in this manner. The Wall Street crash was an occasion for the reconstruction and intensification of the neoliberal program, Pike said. What started off as a banking crisis has been translated into a crisis of the social state. So we've seen this translation from a financial into a state crisis and from a state crisis into a municipal crisis and from a municipal crisis into a crisis of Detroit. And then there's one more thing that I want to read here. Uh, Taking a step back, one sees a twisted morality woven into neoliberalism, the morality of austerity, which dictates an assessment of who's worthy and who's not that overrides everything else. The financial sector that actually caused the financial crisis, triggering, triggering the Great Recession, was let off the hook. Instead, blame shifted to government deficits, even though they were inevitable and necessary a necessary response in order to avoid much worse, a recurrence of the Great Depression. So that idea that neoliberalization is this process of failing forward, of rolling from crisis to crisis, um, never getting anywhere, just really, I don't know, I, I just, I like found it so interesting and certainly seems appropriate in terms of describing definitely the financial crisis. But I was even thinking in this article, it's framed as a discussion of Flint and how Flint came to be. And he talks about how the local governments were blamed for deficits in their state budget, but there were actually uh, deficits across the board. And so like in uh, Detroit, for example, you know, this emergency manager is brought in supposedly to fix this crisis right in this case it was like dealing with the public school system but the thing is that actually under the um city manager they they went from having um a funded school system to having a school system in crisis with a deficit and so i was thinking like you know it doesn't even matter right because the emergency manager isn't there to benefit the people of Flint or Detroit or Benton Harbor, these are some of the places where emergency managers have been put into place. He's not even there to convince the people of that town that he's, you know, going to fix their problems. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's been put there basically to make the the wealthier people in other parts of Michigan think sort of like, good, fi- finally someone's dealing with the Detroit public school system. Oh, finally someone's dealing with Flint. Because... They're using this emergency manager tactic to deal with long-term problems like budget deficits uh, on the municipal level or school systems failing. This is what he's talking about, right? So, And this is what I'm trying to get at is like it doesn't really matter what the solution 
quote unquote solution is, right? The important thing is that we feel like we're doing something. So the emergency manager is doing something in Detroit is how most of the people outside of Detroit feel, you know? And um, Clinton in the 90s, you know, talking about the super predator thing, right? And then um, pushing for the, you know, these bills that led to mass incarceration. It didn't matter, like, there's no, right? He was talking about how there's no end game here. We're not trying to get to anywhere. It's just you're doing something about the problem. And and then that, you know, these there was a you know crime wave happening or whatever. And then the crime wave actually led to a mass incarceration. And now mass incarceration is a problem that we're dealing with. And, you know, supposedly now Clinton is going to do something to deal with mass incarceration. But that'll also just be another thing that'll, you know, create a different crisis that we haven't foreseen yet. And then we'll have to deal with that. And. It's just this, I think it's like meant to give us this sense that like things are happening, we're doing things, but we never get anywhere. Nothing ever happens, nothing ever changes really for the better. Because like if we wanted to deal with crime in the 90s, well, there's like a million different solutions we could have taken, right? We could have made sure that um, young mothers had, you know, were able to get first of all, just like basic nutrition um, or that they had support or that we gave them, you know, money like I was talking about. Right. Um, we could have made sure that unwanted pregnancies were um, easily terminated without shame and fear and whatever. You know, we could have said, hey, we're going to invest equally in all schools wherever they're located across the board and uh, made sure that students had access to art programs, music programs, after school programs, sports, you know, there's like a million different things you can do before anyone becomes a criminal, you know, to engage people. And of course, not every person is going to, this isn't going to help like every single person. But the point is, the crimes bills weren't passed with the idea of let's end Mm. this problem. It was just let's do something about it. And of course, that leads to another rolling crisis because we don't start out with a vision saying this is where we want to end up. We want to end up with zero crime or as little crime as possible or whatever, especially in terms of um, crimes that we kind of like see coming, you know, that are like inevitable, like because of desperation and poverty and things like that. And instead, it was like, no, 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 we'll just put a bunch of people in jail and that'll be fine. And also with the super predator thing it's like that morale that weird morality yeah. woven in. i like the fail forward thing yeah and uh you should also keep in mind that every crisis is an opportunity mm. don't let a good crisis go to waste yeah. i think it's the saying yeah. that dick cheney and them used yeah and it's not about solving the problem we're not trying to improve the lives of criminals we're trying to jail them just so we can say we did something exactly but how did we come to that conclusion well we have major donors who own private prisons and also it's a good jobs program for our area yeah so because we value money so much, we will pay these businesses that funded me and also create jobs at the same time. Yeah. And that's how we'll choose to do something about this problem. Yeah. Not with the goal of solving it, like you said, but just an incremental step to do something. So to me, it sounds like part of what you're coming out against here is like that incremental pragmatic politics of we just have to make things a little bit better at a time. Because ultimately, because our politics is corrupted by business and money, odds are every time you take an incremental step, it's going to be corrupted by those influences. And the more incremental steps you make that aren't guided by values um, get captured by 
the political realities of a corrupt system, which creates more crises, which are more opportunities for um, pillaging profit from the government. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so two things. One, when you talk about that, it's like, yeah, exactly. Because that means that we are, you know, we'd like to think that, oh, well, we're moving forward with some kind of idea or plan, whether it's a Republican moving us in one direction or a Democrat moving us in the other direction, okay. presumably. But in fact, what this process what this idea of this process tells you is no we're not moving anywhere we're not there's no overarching plan to make society better or people's lives better or do anything of the sort it's just about continuing to do something so that everyone who's in power stays in power yeah. the politicians stay in power because they did something mm -hmm. the you know rich people who own prisons stay in power because they have more prisons to build i mean it's just everybody stays exactly where they are we're actually in a constant state of stasis even though we yeah. feel like we're doing something oh, all that's the time. interesting you know and it's like those rich people let the politicians stay in power because they didn't change anything too much yeah right it sounds like if we wanted a healthy politics we would be better off maybe even doing less things total passing less bills maybe but taking bigger steps um, guided by values to actually make things better. And then there was another thing. <sighs> you know, I have two really good concrete examples. Okay. So a lot of municipalities, uh, so because we lived through Reaganomics, nobody ever wanted to raise taxes again. Yeah. So they started selling bonds, which meant that they were in debt. Um, to, it's like when you, um, like your grandparents bought you a savings bond for 50 bucks you cash it in in 20 years, you get 60 bucks. So they were on the hook to pay back more than they received to the bondholders. Right. And now you have to make some changes to pay your bills. So some municipalities started selling their courthouses, their city halls. So they get a big one-time cash payment. They can pay off the investors, but now they have to pay rent every month. Yeah. So they're just deeper and deeper in the hole. And now they have a fiscal crisis, so they have to take out more debt. And this is exactly what happened to Greece. The EU gave them a loan, not the EU specifically, the uh, whatever it's called, the the bank. Troika. Yeah, the Troika, the the con the uh, consortium of yeah. banks and European governments gave them a loan, and they defaulted on that loan. So okay, now you have to make more cuts. You have to pay your workers less, so that we have cheaper labor for our products mm -hmm. because we all have the euro. Yeah. So your workers will get paid less. Your goods will be cheaper, and we'll buy them. And also sell off your assets, sell off your beaches, sell off your islands, your airports. Now they're going to have even less money because they don't have... It's like if you're playing SimCity, you don't sell off the airport. That makes you money. Yeah. You invest in things that make you money yeah. every month, every year. Yeah. You don't want to sell that off. You sell it off. You don't have any more income. They're going to have to take out more debt. Yeah, so that actually reminds me of the other thing that I wanted to talk about in this article, which you've actually, I think told me about before um but that uh i think is like really important to understanding how we end up in a place like this where um just doing something <laughs> seems like a good idea or yeah. um kind of what you were talking about actually so um in the article he also talks about the overton window it comes from i guess uh italian marxist antonio grameschi and um, he first developed the broad conceptual notion of hegemonic warfare, the struggle of ideologies to establish themselves as common sense. The Overton window is this idea that like you can 
at any one point, a certain amount of ideas or a certain type of idea or policies are seen as common sense and acceptable and other ideas are seen as totally crazy and out of realm of possibilities and so it's like you shift you expect like so in this view obviously this actually what we were talking about a little bit last time right is it's politics is a long-term struggle Mm -hmm. and part of that struggle is to shift the overton window to your side right um, and certainly conservatives have seen, I mean, have fully bought into this idea and have been very successful at pulling um, the window over to their side to the point where everybody identifies America as a center-right country. Mm-hmm. And Reagan is everybody's favorite president. Even Obama thinks Reagan is a great president. And ideas like you have to earn it are unquestioned or um what you were saying about like reagan we grew up in a time where reaganomics was you know but actually uh as since we're young people we think that the purpose of a corporation is to maximize returns for its shareholders but that's just something milton friedman made up in the 70s and they uh convinced everybody over the last four decades that that is just that's just a reality yeah but it's just something they invented well and that's like a perfect us. example of the, right so and and on the flip side you convince people that ideas you don't like are crazy so unions for example yeah. when i was reading this i was thinking you know in terms of the overton window when you have like an emergency manager in place for example it doesn't really matter uh, whether they, you know, create deficits or, you know, improve anything because really their role is just to push the window over to their side, right? It's just to, by by imposing crazy ideas like austerity or plundering money out of the Detroit school system is a great idea because teachers are overpaid yeah. or teachers unions are too powerful or whatever it is, you know? and slowly you push that you use you use that like dictatorial power to implement these policies and within a few you know a generation it's like yeah no that's the norm that's the way it's always are you saying that the emergency manager can come in and be like look i'm not a politician i'm a businessman i just want to balance the books and then identify something like teachers make too much money and then people assume that's a reasonable thing because yes. this isn't even a politician. It's exactly. A yeah. That's literally what the guy who was appointed um, to work at uh, on, um, I think, Benton Harbor. Mm-hmm. That's like literally what he said was like, I'm not a politician and I'm, I'm like here to solve problems, you know. Now what's that story of the public park there? They have oh, a really so like a really prized public park that he wanted to sell off for a golf course. But what was the story of that park? Like, Let me find it real quick. Okay, so I first heard about the story of Benton Harbor from Rachel Maddow. Um, and this uh, guy actually, ta- I guess he did too, because he, he talks about it in the article here. So um, basically, uh, Benton Harbor is a population of just under 11,000, and it's 90% African American. Um, and the per capita income is $10,000. Okay. But next door, uh, St. Joseph, with a population of uh, about 8,500, is 90% white, and the per capita income is 33000 
Benton Harbor, once a manufacturing center for Whirlpool appliances, has been decimated by decades of deindustrialization, but it did have one prized civic possession left, the 70-acre Jean Clock Park. This is a park that is right next to, it's like right on Lake Michigan. It's a huge 70-acre park, uh, and it was donated um, to, or willed to the city in perpetuity in 1917 by uh, the former mayor, John Nellis Clock. Uh, Jean is his daughter who died at, in infancy. And when he donated it, he said, this is really a park from Jean and it's for the children and always keep it for the children you know, and it's just like such a beautiful sentiment, really. Um, and this idea that this poor community's children deserved to have access to the beautiful beach and have a space. And for a long time, it's been a place where like children get baptized. Um, obviously, lots of playing in the park, going in the water. Um, so it's just it's a, it's obviously an important part of the community. But in recent years, a private-public partnership, Whirlpool Created, hatched the idea of building a $500 million, uh, 530-acre golf course and residential development, gobbling up 22 acres from the park's center in the process. After years of fighting, Benton Harbor's residents' opposition uh, the local state representative, Al Pasholka, authored the new emergency manager law with his dictatorial powers. As Maddow explains, he happens to be the former vice president of one of the major entities involved in building the luxury golf development that is set to remake Benton Harbor. Until last year, he served as a member of the nonprofit's board of directors, the same one behind the golf course, and now the first town in Michigan to feel the teeth of Pasholka's emergency manager financial martial law Rick Snyder bill is Benton Harbor, very poor, almost entirely African-American in his district, right where they're building the golf course development that he himself has personally spent years bringing into existence. Okay, so I feel like I... I don't know if that was exactly clear. Uh, Pasholka, the representative of... the of, is a representative from um, a majority African-American district in um, or around Benton Harbor... He's the one who authored uh, the emergency manager law with extreme dictatorial powers that said that they could dissolve locally elected officials. So he just happens to also be the former vice president of one of the major entities involved in building the luxury golf uh, course that they want to put in the middle of Benton Harbor's Gene Clock Park. So um, that was also after years of Benton Harbor residents resisting and their local representatives resisting thing being built. Um, the other thing is, you know, we just talked about how Benton Harbor it has a per capita income of uh, $10,000 and membership to this golf course would be $5,000 <laughs> per year. So completely out of reach. That means they have just taken the center of this park and said, nope, you're no longer allowed. And it's, it's just really gross. Um, and a big part of that is meant to appeal to, because a lot of the people uh, who live in the other area of St. Joseph, that's like, a, according to Maddow, that's like a vacation destination for like, I think it's for, is it for Chicagoans? They're like right there or whatever yeah. big city is right near there. I think it's Chicago where they kind of go up for the weekend. They drive along the lake and go up to Lake Michigan and go to this, you know, town. And now they're going to have this very expensive resort 
to yeah. attract these people and it's just like really disgusting because it's like people who have the time and money and luxury of weekending taking something away from people who make like nothing <laughs> So, yeah, so I guess, I mean, we were talking about that mostly in the context. So that's how it works. Yeah. That's how government's done. Yeah. I think there you also got the sense of, oh, well, we can't privatize it. We'll make it a public-private partnership, you know? Like, it's yeah. that next step he was talking about in neoliberalization. And I don't know. It's just this idea that I guess I had definitely encountered the word before, but I hadn't really seen such a specific and meaningful definition, I guess, that really resonated with me. And it's sort of like, um, I don't know, I think you and I have been talking about lately how on the podcast we really want to focus on highlighting things that seem invisible because they're like the most nefarious and it's like there's power in naming things, you know? I thought that this was something that it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, of course. When you see it written out like that and when you watch the talk, which we can put a link up on our Facebook page, it is like really clear when someone kind of, you know, points out the path, right? Like points out the, the idea to you. But on the flip side, it's like I always imagine that that we are moving I guess I imagine it as like forward or backward, depending on if it's like a progressive in power or not. But it makes so much more sense when it's like, well, why why is there always a crisis? Why does nothing ever seem to change? Why is there like no progress forward? I mean, we talk about that a lot. And it's like, because this, this is the process that we are, it's working perfectly. It's yeah. just not working for us, but it's working. Yeah. And so, yeah, I thought this sounded like an interesting thing to highlight. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about it? No, that's a good job. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It was a little all over the place, but I don't know. I Like we were saying last week too, I'd rather just like sometimes try to work out ideas and talk about them than have like a super tight discussion yeah. and be like, I know all the answers. I've, I yeah. got this, you know. But hopefully it was interesting and maybe you learned a little something. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>